Our text this morning will actually begin with verse number nine. And just for something, a consideration of the context here, we remember two Lord's days ago as we looked at the first portion of Luke chapter 18. There we considered where Jesus addressed those who perhaps were weak in faith, those who tempted were to attempted to to lose heart over time. In fact, that's the the introduction it says there in chapter 18, verse 1. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And so certainly there is within us a a tendency and the reality that we can succumb to a the temptation to to lose heart, to become prayerless, to sense that our needs and our desires and our prayers before God are going up against the roof and they're coming right back. That God is not hearing us, that God is not answering us. And on such occasions, the temptation is to, why pray? Why continue? And just to come to a point of, of spiritual tiredness and fatigue where it becomes difficult to press on. That's one side. Our text here, I think, turns to the other side. Turns to those who are of an opposite mentality. Those who, when they consider God and they consider their relationship with God, they are falsely assured. They are erroneously certain of God's favor of God's receiving of them. And so Jesus has words for those like that as well. And what I find is, I tend to gravitate from one extreme to the other. That there are those seasons in my life that I want to quit. That I lose heart. That I become prayerless. That I have no sense of God doing much of anything in my life. All the way to the other extreme of God's doing some wonderful things for me. I must be doing great. He must be really happy with me. So, for those of us who either by nature or those who simply go through seasons of of struggling with the issues of of pride and presumption. This text is for for us. So may God use it to speak to our hearts. So begin reading with me here in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And those two generally go side by side. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, 
was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. As many of you know, I I taught for 11 years in a Christian school, and one of the areas of responsibility that I assumed in serving as a minister of music in the church that I was in, which had the Christian school, was overseeing the music in the school and also working with many of the older students. And we were involved on a yearly basis in a variety of competitions, all the way from from a school choir to smaller vocal ensembles, quartets, trios, duets, solos, all the way down, some, mostly vocal, but also there were some instrumental areas as well. And so my response, one of my responsibilities was if I wasn't directly involved, at least to oversee all of this. And in preparing... And seeing that these individuals were prepared for the annual competition as it came up. One of the preparations that I would do in consideration of the competition that would come is that I would take the judges' forms that I knew the judges would have in hand. And I would go over those things and making sure that I've not missed something. Just in case I look at that sheet and they say, oh, here's something that the judge is supposed to be looking for. And I've really not thought about that. And so take a mental note the next time together with usually the choir. Say, all right, guys, here's something we need to give thought to. And so part of my preparation was just simply knowing what the judges were looking for. Taking that form, being familiar with it and making sure that everything that's on that judge's form I had addressed with them. Our text today is one of the many times in the scripture and also one of the many times in the teaching ministry of Jesus himself where he references this future judgment. And with that, it grants us an opportunity to see and to know what the supreme judge of all the earth, before whom all of mankind before whom each one of us will stand. And to know what that judge is looking for. And how we ought to make levels of preparation in light of that. He's revealed these things to us. And our text today reveals two sides of one of the principles of divine judgment that will be enacted Ultimately, at the day of judgment, we stand before God, but even in some degree, we see it enacted in this life. Not in its fullness, not completely, but it will be ultimately exercised in the day of judgment. And the principle that's thrust before us as we consider this, as we look at our text here, is the principle of humility as opposed to haughtiness or self-righteousness. We see the principle very clearly spoken to us here in the words of Jesus. 
In the last part of verse 14, here's the principle. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the principle. A principle of divine judgment that will be enacted in its fullest sense when we stand before God. So when we think about humility, we think about self-exaltation, we think about pride, we think about self-righteousness, we think about brokenness before God. This scripture brings to us some light on that text. So as we think about this principle as revealed to us, I think it's warrant that we make preparation by pursuing by pursuing the, the grace, the virtue that is expounded to us here of humility before God. So what are the warnings that are brought to us here in this text? First of all, there is this. There is God's consideration of the heart. God's consideration of the heart. Here Jesus in our text uses two of his common methods to teach us and to teach those who were hearing him in his day regarding this truth. And those two methods, it was either one is the use of a parable, which Luke identifies it as such in verse 9. He also told them this parable, a very common method that Jesus uses. But he also uses this method of contrast. You have one side versus Another side, the contrast that's presented here is the contrast of particular effectiveness when we consider the audience, those who are hearing Jesus here. On one side, or if we might say, in this corner, you have a Pharisee. The Pharisee, one of the religious elite, one of those who has made religious Practice, one who has made religious activity and religious observation, he's made a science of it. They've got it down to the details. This is what a person is to do if they are to honor God. They've got it down to the minute details of life. There's the Pharisee. And then you have with that in this corner the contrast of a tax collector or a publican as the, the King James and the New King James describe him. And what is that? Here is the epitome in their day, in their culture, in the Jewish mind. This is the epitome of a sinner. This is a man who has betrayed their nation because he's collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. This is a man who likely, and in many cases, just the reality, they were known to be cheaters. As they would be collecting their taxes, they would often take more than they rightfully should and whatever they could take that wasn't demanded by Rome into their pocket it would go. So in the mind of the Jewish people in this day, when Jesus speaks of a Pharisee on one side and a publican or a tax collector on the other side, you've got two opposites here. You've got one that in their mind is the epitome of righteousness and virtue and godliness. And then you have on the other side the epitome of sin 
The epitome of one with whom God would have absolutely nothing to do. He's rejected by God. So you have this contrast drawn before us. And in their day it would be difficult to imagine two more extreme ends of the spectrum from virtue to vice. In their minds, it's clear. You've got righteousness and you've got unrighteousness and never will the two meet. Two opposite extremes, two opposite ends of the spectrum. So this Pharisee that Jesus speaks of, him going to pray, him going to the temple to pray, in their mind, that's very fitting. Pharisees do that. They're godly people. They're righteous men. They go and they pray in the temple. So when Jesus speaks of this Pharisee going, it makes sense. This would be typical. And the Pharisees would often go with their standard prayers of of thanksgiving, thanking God for what He is, or thanking God for what He is not. Very typical. Many commentators write of the common prayer of the Pharisees would be something like this. I thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a slave, and that I am not a woman. That's the prayer. And then the stark contrast of a tax collector going into the temple to pray. Verse 10, that's what it says. Two men went up into the temple to pray. That's like just some of the most gross sinners you can think of coming to church on Sunday. So, this tax collector, he's going to the temple. What a waste of time. God is going to have nothing to do with this man. They've, we've got it figured out. This is a waste. We know where this story is going. That's where they are. <laughs> we know where this story is going. We should all try to be like Pharisees. And if we're not, we might as well be like a tax collector. That's where the story is going, isn't it? Well, then you have the shocking announcement of verse 14. What does he say? Well, first of all, he introduces it with this phrase, I tell you. <clears throat> We've considered that before, haven't we? Going through Luke. Time after time after time, when Jesus is about to speak a solemn truth, he wants to make sure there is no doubt in your mind. I tell you, by the authority of God, I tell you, as God Himself speaking, I tell you, this man, which man? This tax collector. Went to his house justified not along with but rather than the other the tax collector here according to the words of Jesus 
According to the words of God himself, this tax collector, he is by Jesus declared justified. And here the word is used in the forensic or the legal sense, the sense of a court of law where the judge passes the verdict, not guilty. You are declared righteous. God says to a wicked, sinful tax collector, you are righteous. And this Pharisee, the designation of the Pharisee in verse 14 is just simply the other. (laughs) The other, this Pharisee, he's left to himself. He is still alienated from and guilty before God. So how in the world... Does Jesus dare to speak for God and to speak as God and make such a claim? How can that be? Folks, a blind man can see this. A blind man can see that God is drawn to these Pharisees because because of what they do, because of their worship, because of the seriousness of which they approach their relationship with God and their duties before God. And a blind man can see that these tax collectors, these traitors, and these cheaters, that God would reject these. It'd have nothing to do with people like that. Anybody, a blind man can see that. And here is Jesus as God Himself saying that the opposite is true. That in fact, this tax collector is declared righteous, forgiven, innocent, instead of this Pharisee who remains in his sin. How can he do that? And the answer is simply this. It's really from the Old Testament. Man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. That's why King David became King David, isn't it? When God sent Samuel after, after Saul's sin as king, and God sent Samuel to anoint someone else to be the king in his place, even though he was still in that position, he goes to the house of Jesse, and here come the brothers. Here come the sons of Jesse, and, you know, and Samuel he looks and he sees this Firstborn, he sees his, his form. He sees it. This is the man. Yeah, like this guy. You've done well, Lord. And God said, this isn't the one. Now here comes another one. Well, he's not bad either. It's not the one. Somewhere in that process, God tells, that's the word God uses there. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, he says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I mean, what was it that made Saul such a readily acceptable king to the people? It was his size. This man had the looks of a leader, head and shoulders above everyone else. So when Saul becomes, he's appointed to be the king, people look at him and say, Yes. Problem is, he doesn't have a heart for God. So man sees in this parable here, 
Man sees a Pharisee. Man sees a man who is devoutly religious. Man sees someone who is dedicated to religious activity. Seeing one who is praying confidently. And one who can truthfully say that he is unscathed by the scandalous sins of others around him. He's not telling a lie here. Verse 11. Thank you, I'm not like other people. Swindlers and unjust adulterers are like this tax collector, a cheater and a traitor. I'm glad I'm not, I'm not like that. He's probably telling the truth. That he's not marked by scandalous sin. And then man sees a tax collector, a reputable sinner, a cheater. Can't find any good thing about this guy. Let me think about something good about a tax collector. I got nothing. Mine's blank. Why would God have anything to do with this one? So the expected response would be that the Pharisee is honored by God and the tax collector would be rejected. But God sees something else, doesn't he? God sees a Pharisee, a man who is confident in what he makes of himself. There's no grace here in this man. I mean, look, folks, what he says in verse 11b. I thank you, I'm not like other people. Swindlers and unjust and adulterers are even like this tax sector. Listen, folks, there are many, many people outside the kingdom of God. There are many graceless people who can say the exact same thing. There's no need of grace here. Lots of people, lots of graceless men can say the same thing and be truthful. No grace is necessary. And even the virtues of verse 12. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Where's grace here? Anybody can do these things. And so this man, this man boasts. This man's confidence before God was his performance. Trusting in himself that he was righteous. And he was doing nothing more than anyone outside the grace of God can do and in many situations do. They can avoid these scandalous sins and they can practice certain virtues, but there's nothing in that to indicate grace. See, there's nothing here. There's nothing here of a man who recognizes his need of God. Busy thanking God for all the things that he is and all the things that he is not. But there's no prayer here of deliverance from what he is. The real issue, and that is that he is a sinner against his God. No prayer here like that. And then God sees his tax collector. His tax collector in verse 13, he stands some distance away. And evidently the, the Pharisee, he's come up to the front. He's got the impressive place to be seen by all. This Pharisee, he considers himself, I mean this publican, tax collector. He considers himself unfit to come at all. But he knows he must. 
There's no place else to go. Unfit to come before God, but knowing He must come to God. So He comes in verse 13. Keep standing some distance away. Unwilling to lift His eyes to heaven. You know what that is. Why would a man be unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven? What is it that turns our head downward? Shame. Guilt. And so this man is, he's ashamed. And he has this sense of, of guilt and he wouldn't dare look up to heaven but beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Man who has no righteousness, no good deeds of his own to proclaim. A man who is guilty of sin and he comes seeking for God's atoning mercy. And that's what he says here is, God, be merciful to me. And I made reference to this text a few weeks ago. Here the word merciful here is not just pity. Don't just feel sorry for me. The word here is the word for propitiation. It is God, do an atoning work for me. Save me from my sin. I cannot deliver myself from who I am, from what I am, from what I've done. God, you do something. You do something with my sin. You atone me. You, God, be propitiated. Do something. See, both these men separate themselves from others, don't they? This Pharisee, he separates himself from most men by his self-proclaimed virtue and that again in verse 11b I'm not like other people swindlers and unjust and adulterers as tax collector I'm not like these people but then you have this tax collector he separates himself from other people too he doesn't use the words saying like something like I'm not like other people. I'm not like other men. This is what he says. God be merciful to me, the sinner. God, I'm not like other people. I'm worse. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Plenty of other people would be in line in front of me here, Lord, more deserving, more righteous than me. Here I am, a guilty sinner before you. I'm not like other men. I'm far worse than they are. Be merciful. This is the man who, according to the words of God Himself, Jesus Himself, leaves and he's justified. He is declared righteous. Why? Because he comes to someone outside of himself. He comes to God himself and says, God, you deal with my sin because I cannot. I cannot deliver myself from my sin. 
So there's two things here to take note. First is this. Any of those, any here who might hope to gain God's favor by your merit, by your performance, have a proud heart. Beware. Beware. God sees the heart. And it's not your performance. It's not the virtue of you being in church. It's not the virtue of you having whatever you've done. Whatever you think you should have done. Or you ought to be doing. My background is not the virtue of walking down an aisle. It's not the virtue of walking obedience in baptism. What are you trusting in? Have you seen your vileness and your wickedness before God? Have you seen that you can do nothing for yourself? You can do nothing to deal with your sin. That You must cast yourselves upon the mercies of God and say, God, you work with this sin. You atone me. You bring me to a right relationship with you because I cannot. And he's done that for all who embrace Jesus Christ as their provision of righteousness. And this other side is to take heart. To take heart of any here who would sense the enormity of their guilt. Say, oh, God would never have a place for me. Ah, folks, there is hope. There is hope. (laughs) Oh, it's good every now and then just to find a good bona fide sinner. I went to visit a man this week. And a man professes to know the Lord. But... The great hindrance that I had in trying to share with this man was he knows everything. He's got his theology. One of his, he asked me what I believed about this particular issue, about people when they die. You know, where are they? I said, well, I think the Scripture teaches that you to be absent in the body, you pray to the Lord. You're with the Lord. Oh, I believe that their souls are asleep, you know, soul sleeping type of thing, that kind of thing. And it was all these little pet things, these little trivial, what I would consider secondary issues of certainly as far as looking for a church home or whatever. But it's good every now and then you just find a bona fide sinner who recognizes, man, I, my life is a mess and I need, I need help. I need wisdom. Help. I need Christ. So for those who have a sense of the enormity of your guilt, listen. Here it is. And this is what I tell people looking for Christ, coming to Christ. I say, cry out for His mercy. Cry for His mercy. Don't try to impress Him. Don't make any promises. Lord, if you'll save me, I'll do da 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 Forget it. God, be merciful. God, remove the guilt of this sin from me that I cannot do on my own. That is the prayer that God hears because that's the prayer from the heart that's been convicted. That's the prayer of a man who has seen himself as God sees him. To abandon any notion of saving ourselves. Listen, can the leopard change his spots? (laughs) You think you're going to pretty yourself up and come to God then? Forget it. There is wonderful truth to that song of 20,000 verses, just as I am, without one plea. But that, my God, 
His blood was shed for me. Wonderful truth there. God considers the heart of the contrite. He's not impressed by one's claims to goodness. If you believe you have every right to access the throne of God, look out. You're in trouble. But if you see yourself as absolutely unfit for such a place, there is hope. There is hope. Second, we see God's condemnation of the haughty. Jesus explains the reason for what is really the shock of verse 14. This man went to his house justified. That's shocking to them. The reason for that, he explains this principle that is in place. And actually it's an action that he uses on other places as well. We considered it back in Luke chapter 14, verse 11. That is this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're going to look at the first half of that here first. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. I want you to consider that statement for a moment. This statement is given by Jesus here, spoken as an absolute, inescapable, universal principle of divine judgment. Everyone. Everyone. Have we got, do we know who everyone is? Okay, you got that? Everyone who exalts himself. Every single one who is confident in himself that he is righteous. Every single person who believes that he can stand before God and has really no need of God to do anything for him. Everyone who would deny Christ. Everyone who would reject Christ. And certainly that's the epitome of exalting oneself. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You know the modern day vernacular, don't you? God's going to bring you down. You're coming down. Everyone who exalts himself, everyone who believes he needs nothing of God, will be Humbled. Why such a strong statement here against self-exaltation and at the root of the sin of pride? I think it's this. Because it is rooted in a failure and a refusal to consider oneself in the light of God's truth and particularly the Scriptures. One reads the Scriptures, he will find there many deterrents to pride. For example, from the scriptures we find out, first of all, that we are created beings. You didn't make yourself. You're created. And so everything that we are is a gift of God to us. It is not of our own doing, of our own ability. You know, when Paul even asked the saints there in Corinth, he says... What do you have that you did not receive? And why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? As though this were something generated from within. You're boasting. Everything you've got was given to you. 
Everything that you are is from the hands of someone else. God Himself. Second, we find in the Scriptures, deterrence to pride. We are created from the dust. Now there's your pedigree, folks. Just go outside. Here is my family heritage. Right there. Dirt. You got some pride in that? And not only that, unless the Lord comes, and when He does, you're going back to it. In 80 years or so, give or take a few. And it's not at your picking. I don't get to pick when I go back to the dust either. I am at the mercies of someone else. Thirdly, we see, as a deterrent to pride, that we are a fallen race. We have fallen in rebellion from God's glorious design. God's design that we reflect His glory, His greatness, His goodness. Very simply, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You don't live up to the glorious standard for which God created us. Fall short. Also from the scriptures, we see as a deterrent to sin that we, because of sin, that all of our righteousness has the taint of sin. Everything we do, everything you touch, has the taint of sin. Scripture says all of our righteousness is filthy rags. Folks, it's not just a little tidbit. It permeates everything that we do because of what we are. Sin. That even what we would do well, the world can say, well, that's a commendable, that's a virtuous thing to do. If we are doing it apart from the grace of God, and we are doing it with no thought for the glory of God, it is sin. Because the glory goes no further than ourselves. Also, we see from the Scriptures as a deterrent to pride that we are completely Corrupt. Every aspect of our being has been affected by this fall. So the scripture says that there is none good, that there is none who seeks God. None who seek God. It's recorded in Genesis pretty completely like this. Is every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only Evil continually. Will you get that? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's us. Apart from the grace of God. That's the natural man. And then, dear saints, as further deterrence to pride, if we think, well, I'm a Christian now, 
we're reminded from the scriptures that we still sin. As the people of God, with the revelation, with the light that we have, we sin against light, we sin against grace. So that, even if you just look at your life from the point of conversion until now, there's still nothing to boast in. So with that kind of a picture, you tell me, is there any place for pride? Is there any place for self-exaltation with this type of a record against us? You know, pride has been described as the most unreasonable of sins. I think it is, if you think about it. It's pretty unreasonable. Why in the world would I be proud? And I understand that if there's any virtue that I do, it is all by the grace of God, so I can't boast in it. I've got to say, thank you, Lord. Yet it still haunts us. Doesn't it? It rises up in our hearts. And it rises up in the most strange places. Places that you think there's nothing, there's no way that the pride could get a, a foothold in here. And here it comes. You know, one man I heard say, if we're not proud, you know, you know what happens? You become proud that you're not proud. I'm so thankful that I'm humble. <laughs> and I think we all know that pride and haughtiness can certainly be no uglier than in the context of the church. Of all the places that pride should seem inappropriate, unfitting, in the context of the people of God. And yet it rises up. Paul had to address that issue in Corinth. You're arrogant. And we want to take credit for any virtue, any good deed. We'll take any occasion to blow our own horn of abilities and successes. And just in case no one else notices, let me tell you what I've done. And spiritually, what it amounts to is we fail to recognize our absolute dependence upon the grace of God. I've got nothing to boast in. So Jesus' warning here is this. You exalt yourself. You advance yourself. You make much of yourself. You have any measure within your heart of thinking that you are righteous apart from the grace of God. You will be humbled. Sometimes in the mercies of God, men are humbled in this lifetime and even brought to repentance. Sometimes they are humbled and they're not brought to repentance. But ultimately, all will be humbled before God. Anyone who would dare to live thinking himself without need 
of God's intervention on his behalf will be humbled because he's still living in a state of pride and arrogance. Certainly the warning here would be to take heed anyone, and I would pray that it not be the case here. Any foolish boasters, particularly in matters before God. Scripture tells us, James chapter 4, verse 6, God is opposed to you. He resists the proud, the King James says. He's opposed to the proud. He is able... He is willing and He will ultimately, unless there is repentance, unless there is humility, bring about your demise. But there is another side. Jesus gave us the other side of that principle when He counters in the last part of verse 14. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Once again, We see this absolute, inescapable, universal principle. He who humbles himself. And in the context here, appropriate to consider that it means everyone. Just as it did in the first part. Everyone who exalts himself. Everyone. He, his. He, who. Whoever it is. Who humbles himself. Will be Exalted. Jesus here confirms God's willingness, God's desire to show His mercies to one who is humble in spirit, one who sees himself as he really is, as he truly is before God. And listen, this is not a pretended false humility. It's not a berating of oneself when inside, oh, I don't really think this is me, but that's what people need to hear. No, it's not false humility. It's a conviction of the heart. It's agreeing with the scriptural portrayal of one's desperate plight to see oneself in the worst light as revealed in the scriptures and to say, even as Isaiah said before the face of God, I am undone before God. And the need for God to intervene on their behalf or to be eternally damned. And then with that, the accompanying, the accompanying virtue or test, if you would, of humility before God. How do you not really, really got this thing right? Is it a genuine humility before God? Well, the test of humility before God is this. Humility before others. Oh, I didn't want to say that. Verse 9. Some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Here's the consequence of thinking that you're righteous. They viewed others with contempt. They looked down their nose at other people and their sin. I think, I cannot imagine being like that. Those, the scriptural testimony is this. 
those who receive mercy show mercy. If you've truly received mercy from God, you can show mercy. In light of the worst of sins. Because that's exactly what God has done. When Jesus describes those who are members of his kingdom, one of the descriptive words that he uses is merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Here's a way I'm going to describe people who are in my kingdom. Here's a way I'm going to describe people who are truly born into the Spirit of God. They're merciful. Blessed are the merciful, according to the Beatitudes. For they, and again the context, very clear, they and they alone will receive mercy. So show me a man, show me a woman who cannot show mercy in light of the sins of others. And I will show you a man that has, or a woman who has reason to be alarmed about the state of their own soul. Mercy. To be willing to acknowledge that anyone else's sin, anyone else's failures could just as easily be my own apart from God's grace. Do you believe that? See, most of us don't really believe that. I mean, hey, I've got some goodness. I've got some virtue. If nothing else, I've got good old common sense. But to look at other another person's sin and to show mercy because you realize that could just as easily have been me, apart from the grace of God. Psalm fifty one seventeen, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. James chapter four again, verse six. God gives grace to the humble. And so, response to that in James chapter 4, verse 10. So, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And He will exalt you. Here it is. James repeating virtually the same thing Jesus says here. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourself before, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. What is the exaltation? Ultimately, it's this. It is owning you as His child, receiving you into His kingdom and giving you heaven. That's quite an exaltation. And it's much more of an exaltation than I'll ever be able to make for myself if I choose the other side. And that is, I'm going to exalt myself. I can exalt myself in my own measly little dream world that amounts to nothing. Or I can humble myself before God and let God exalt me into His world of heaven. Of Himself. It's going to be forever. Makes good sense, doesn't it? If you look at it that way. If I'm going to exalt myself, what am I going to get? Best case scenario. It's not much. Humble myself and let God exalt me. What am I going to get? It's a wonderful scenario. 
The words of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? Walk humbly with your God. And it ain't just you and God. It's not just me and Jesus. We've got our own thing going. It is you and God and walking with a spirit of grace and humility and charity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I like this thing a lot better if it's on this level. It gets painfully, painfully revealing when it's on this level. And it reveals to me that there is more in my heart of a spirit of pride and of arrogance than I'd ever dreamed and I certainly had ever hoped. And I have to come and say, oh God, be merciful to me. This is worse than I thought. This sin in my heart, even as a redeemed child of God, how this thing just, it just arises. And I see it by the way I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ. So have you a sense of guilt? You a burden of sin that you fear keeps you from God? Well, just own up to it and admit it. Do not despair. Cry out to God. Cry out to God for His atoning mercy. Jesus said, Come to Me. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden with this burden of guilt and sin? Come to Christ. Come to Me. Come to Me in repentance, in renouncing your sin, owning your sin. Show it forth in its worst light. Don't try to make it pretty. Don't try to make excuses. Here it is. As ugly and as vile as it is. That's it. That's all I got. Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Boy, aren't those beautiful words? I will give you rest. Folks, you're going to be exalted. Or are you going to be humbled? One or the other. God is either going to bring you down or He's going to raise you up. One or the other. What does He see when He considers your heart? I'm not asking about the outside. He's like, look, pastor, we're here at church. What are you talking to us for? Because it may be nothing more than a testimony of the grace of God that you are here to hear this message. You hear the warnings of Jesus. You exalt yourself. You're going to be humbled. And again, you exalt yourself What's that going to give you? Best case scenario. It's not going to be much. Or you humble yourself. Just be willing to own up to it. It's uglier than I thought. 
It's uglier and it's worse than I've tried to let other people think. It's vile. God, be merciful to me. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. And He will exalt you. Heavenly Father, how these words expose and they pierce, they penetrate. Oh God, help us. And Lord, I stand before these people as one who just must cry out, God, be merciful to me. Find pride in the most foolish of things. Lord, I ask you to take your words of truth to us today. And you apply as needed, you apply as appropriate. I pray there are people here today who need to be humble, Lord, that you would bring them down, give them that grace before it's too late. But I pray, oh God, if there are some today who are so beat down, they even believe there's no hope, Lord, that you would lift despair. And that you would show your atoning mercy. You would lift the burden and the weight and the guilt of sin by bringing about the work of justification. Declare them, O God, righteous. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.